0: One is that families still very strongly believe that the only way to raise kids is a house with a backyard, and I talk about it all the time, and this is a mindset that we have to get rid of, Um, and uh, so this is one. And the second thing is that our planning system gives a lot of power to those privileged homeowners to dictate that nothing else could be built in their neighborhood?
1: Building a successful real estate career requires you to adapt, pivot, and constantly master new skills.
2: We're Katie and Daniel Steinfeld. We've built our own innovative brokerage. And in this podcast, we've assembled actionable tips and strategies that you can implement to take your business to its maximum potential.
1: It's time to level
2: up. Level up. Level up. Level up. Level up. Level up.
1: Okay. We are now live and welcome again to Level Up. We have a very exciting episode today thanks to everyone who's tuning in. Um, as always uh, as you're here, feel free to throw any questions in the chat. We will get to them as, uh, as you ask them. But uh, without keeping anybody waiting, I would like to jump in and introduce Nama Blonder, who is our special guest today from Smart Density Architect, Urban Planner, and someone who I've had the pleasure of hearing just a tidbit from that was so exciting and interesting that I really needed to make sure that we had the opportunity to have her on and talk to us about all the things she does, some of the great ideas that she and her company have for planning in this and many cities around the world. And uh, before I butcher your bio, why don't I just say a big welcome to you. Thanks for coming. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what Smart Density is all about? Sure,
0: thank you for having me. So hi everyone, I'm Nama Blonder. I'm an architect and urban planner. Um, What we do a lot of and I want to say very best or very very well sorry um, is that we talk about housing affordable housing how we actually design for people less for cars uh, transit-oriented communities that really put people first and cars last all these good things that we all tend to talk about and I guess I have a little bit of an advantage of not being I wasn't born in Canada I wasn't raised in Canada I came here at the my very late 20s so it was my choice um and I have that perspective of how how we can how we can improve and also how wonderful city Toronto is don't get me wrong
2: (laughs) so where did you grow up uh where are you from
0: I am originally from Israel Mm -hmm. I went to architecture school there then believe it or not Toronto was my affordable option a few years after I graduated. And I know it's funny, people don't believe me. But first of all, a decade ago, Toronto was more affordable than it is now. So I slowly, you know, it it becomes less and less affordable. But the worst part is that I know what happens to cities when they become unaffordable to an extent that next generation doesn't see a future for themselves. That feeling of lack of air of how am I supposed to do it if I can pay rent and save money and have a secure home for my future family. I remember that this is what I like clearly had thought in Tel Aviv a decade ago. And maybe, you know, maybe if, if I stayed Today, I was in a different situation. you know, 10 to 15 years into my career, I'm sure it's a very different situation than you're an intern. But back then, I just couldn't see how the numbers are going to work. So me and my partner was also an architect. So it's like making things worse. Uh, we're looking for, yeah, you, you know what it is, right? Um, so we were looking for, for other opportunities and Toronto was welcoming immigration, as this, you know, we, we still do, uh, and that's how we moved here.
1: And you and you were just back visiting Israel last month, right? Like you just yes, I
0: just got back. I just got back. It's uh, I I also have to say that Tel Aviv. I don't know how many of if you guys, Daniel and Katie, if you had a chance to visit Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv is a wonderful city. It's vibrant like no other cities I've ever been to it's like I I realized that everywhere I go I'm looking for the same passion and vibrancy that you get in Tel Aviv Mm -hmm. and I couldn't find it not in New York not in Toronto not in Paris like Tel Aviv is a really special vibe
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, so have you been in Tel Aviv
1: I've been I've been one time for okay not Love not Friday. enough time. Very quick visit. <laughs> okay,
0: so you
2: should go back. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Yeah,
1: and and so when you, I mean, I I know you mentioned when I when I heard you last, like you were talking about the way that definitely European cities. I don't know if if Tel Aviv, Israel, are similar, but the way that the perspective on housing and architecture and density and planning is different, and how foreign it is to someone like you coming here and seeing the way it's done. Do you get a taste of that when you go back and you see how things are there? <laughs> or is it different in Israel than you? It, it's
0: still it's still every time, uh, you know, just to, to keep it in the context of Toronto for just, uh, it, I, I get it a lot from people who visit Toronto for the first time and like, they look around and like, what's with all the housing in the core of the downtown? Now, maybe for us, technically, we know it's not the downtown, but you you don't go to large cities, not even in North America, but in, in especially not in Europe. You're not going and visit Paris or Rome or Barcelona and you have mm-hmm. single detached houses in the in the heart of the city. And that perception, that that view is so bizarre for many of us who ha- came here at a very you know later part of phase in life and I remember the first week I moved to Toronto my partner was studying at U of T so I was like okay I'm gonna explore the city on my own and I took the subway I said I'm gonna get somewhere like on a random stop on a random station and I got off at Bathurst and I you step you know out of Bathurst station and it's it's the annex it's all single it's a sea of single detached semi whatever semi and single and detached houses and I remember thinking how fast did this train go I thought Mm -hmm. I'm in the suburbs I thought that I just took a very fast train somewhere outside of the city so Mm we have As an area where steps away from a subway station where it's a very expensive infrastructure, we all pay for it, but only few get to enjoy it because we have neighborhoods that are single family homes with backyards. And this is how, and the worst thing is, there are a few worst things on, on the items on the list, is that One is that families still very strongly believe that the only way to raise kids is a house with a backyard. And I talk about it all the time. And this is a mindset that we have to get rid of. Um, And uh, so this is one. And the second thing is that our planning system gives a lot of power to those privileged homeowners to dictate that nothing else could be built in their neighborhood, but more than, you know whatever they, they think is is right. And I don't want to say just single family houses because of course that's not what's being built right now, but definitely a lot of discussion around height and density and the type of, um, and the type of, of homes or units that we are delivering to the market. And our system has, the planning system has a uh, really empowering, the wrong type of discussion, which is really, and let's also address the elephant in the room, which is the subtext of all of this conversation. And it's not, I will be gentle because we just started this conversation, but (laughs) (laughs) being really afraid of change in your neighborhood. And that is. People who don't look like you, who don't, uh, are not, they don't sound like you, um, and they don't, definitely cannot afford buying Mm -hmm. a house that you were able to to afford. Maybe even if it was 30 years ago and you you yourself are not even capable of buying a house in your neighborhood today. Mm -hmm. But still, this is the subtext that goes behind um the conversation today so it's not just the way we built neighborhoods in the past it's also the cultural assumption of how people should live and you should buy a house with a backyard even if it means that you need to commute for two hours per direction or 90 minutes Mm -hmm. that is still a legit thought as long as you don't live in a in a condo or an apartment and again that's only just type of tender that's when we say condos, just means that someone owns it. Uh, but on mid-rise or tall buildings, because you should live in a house with a backyard, and if you don't, something really bad happened in your life. And mm-hmm. I'm saying this just to be very clear. We, I live in a in a three-bedroom condo that we purchased last year because I didn't have to convince anyone that raising a family in a three-bedroom condo is uh is crazy and we don't yeah. own a car we use transit we ride our bike we walk to work we walk to daycare we walk to school um and yes I have a parking spot as part of my condo but I don't own a car mm. yeah it's- I think we can I think we covered a lot so
2: no, that was really good. And you're right. Like that's definitely our big issue in Toronto and Canada is just that under or that belief that you need to leave, live in a single family home to raise a family and I slowly see things happening definitely not as fast as all of us would like, but with condos offering playrooms for kids and different, you know, daycares within the condos and things like that, but Do you see anything big kind of pushing the needle forward on people believing that or just accepting the fact that they can't, they need to have a smaller space if they want to live in the city with their family?
0: Exactly, exactly. And now we can talk about how small is small and like, it's really about Mm -hmm. living in it. it is more compact. Just to be clear, I'm not saying anyone is going to have a 1,500, 2,000 square feet, uh, housing um, on the 10th yeah. floor right like there is yeah. trade-offs for sure my three-bedroom condo is just over a thousand by all means not big but it is one level it is if you ask me not having staircase is super child-friendly I don't need to be worried about that I grocery strollers or all of that is much easier when you don't have staircase a staircase or like a multi-level uh, home Um, but also I have a lot of benefits and that is raising my kids in an environment where they could be more independent. They will be able to take, you know, TTC, not uh, their current age, but but as they grow up something that, you know, a teenager in, in the suburbs is, is not their independence is the, the first to, to pay the price because you can't really rely on a bus that comes once in a while in. In the suburbs right and 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 also I, you know, also the parents of uh, picking up and drop offing three times a day, you know, just because the kids can't use transit so there are many advantages of this lifestyle that uh, you know just imagine how my weekends look like. Every weekend we do something else in the city. We have memberships to everything you can you can think of. And, and it's, it's a lifestyle that looks very, very differently from those who live in, in, in the suburbs. Um, and I, first of all, six years ago, the city of Toronto uh, came up with a new policy that I think because everything takes so long in this city to from approval to to being built, We are now twenty. It's now 2023. The city uh, initiated in 2017. I think that now we are starting to see units coming as a result of that policy from seven years ago, six years ago. Sorry, and and I think that will move the needle. But it's also a a cultural shift that needs to happen, and also developers. You know, it's the chicken and the egg. Developers will tell you that. No young couple on earth will be able to buy pre-construction, you know, looking f- into their future five years from now or assessing their needs in, in pre-construction markets. And families will tell you, how do you want me to, you know, live in a family-friendly condo if the market does not deliver that? Like the private sector does not deliver uh um, family friendly units. Um, and I, I intentionally say family friendly unit and not family size, because it's, there's so many things that could happen that are not just a question of size. And I'm not saying families should, um, compromise for something that they feel is really uncomfortable. But, you know, when you go to other cities like Paris, even you know what, why Paris? I grew up in a four-bedroom apartment. So right now, if you're looking for a four-bedroom condo, it does not exist. Nothing, zero. Even when we were looking for the three-bedroom condo, we narrowed it down to five buildings that we could potentially find three-bedroom condos um, that we could could live and purchase and move in. Five buildings. And... When, when, when we laugh, they're like, oh, what, what if we want a four-bedroom? We will be forced to move to a house. Four-bedroom units do not exist in the market. Now, let's do a fast-forward 20 years from now, 25 years from now. Where do you think people are going to live? Let me tell you, not in houses,
1: Right.
0: Period so developers would have or one of them and i don't think it's it's i think it's a, a really incredible business opportunity because you definitely have younger you know, or like couples young families who are looking to buy eventually they will buy something in a subdivision in milton for an amount the same amount of money that i pay for my condo not to mention that Anyone who owns a house right now paid more than what I pay for my condo. Condo is still more an, an affordable option in relationship or in comparison to a house. So if we're looking at 20 years from now, 25 years from now, we, we, we won't build more and more subdivision. It's just not, it won't happen. Not because of the net zero targets and because it's very expensive to build infrastructure for them. and it's just not going to happen. And how much can you commute? You know? Right. So people are going to live in apartments or condos or whatever you want to call them, but mid-rise and taller buildings. So the markets at some point would have to address the needs of demographics that so, over, so far has been overlooked.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting you say that too, because maybe we're all naive here, but I really think it's more the developers are being naive when you think about the fact that all the population growths, growth or a substantial amount of the population growth is built on immigration, right? And immigration, to your point, is a lot of people who might be used to living in such a way that would make more sense to develop, right? And then on top of that, at least in our experience, it is more of the old school way of thought and by association older people who tend to buy into the way it's always been right and they're right. slowly but surely they're not upsizing right like they're not continuously looking for houses it's their kids and their grandkids who I want to believe have a more open mind about this stuff even you know those who have been raised in this society so culturally speaking i want to be optimistic that at least from a, a demand side the right people are there to look for these things and for that reason i mean a lot of what you do is help influence and help educate the supply side, I think. I don't know how much you have to do much work educating people on what might work better for them. I'm sure some people with the backyard mindset need to understand that a city park can be, like you've said, I think you said this when you last spoke, it can be a lot nicer than any gorgeous backyard and it's right there. Um, So what sorts of things... And I know it's a laundry list, but like, what are the main elements of what you'd want, you know, be it government, be it developers, to start thinking about now so that 20, 30 years from now, we're not completely without hope?
0: And you know what I said about so first of all you're right as long as demand increases which is immigration in this case or at least not, not necessarily uh, it is immigration so unless in the in government the exactly yes yeah. yeah. unless the government uh, shuts down immigration demand will will exceed uh, supply right. And, and then I was asking, like, realistically, what do you think? And and I asked that many people, what will happen here in 20 to 25 years? Do you think now it's, it's an affordability crisis? Can you imagine if we just continue that way with our current growth forecast and our current building, um, you know, what, what we're actually delivering to the market. Can you imagine this place in 20 to 25 years in the next generation uh, where my kids are going to make an, a housing choice, right? And and I still have people here talking about the affordability crisis as if it's, the problem is that they cannot afford to own a house. <laughs> Again, that is for them the affordability crisis. And, and they need to wake up because that's not, first of all, they need to wake up because, no one is ever going to be able to afford a house. like just just accept that reality. There are too many people, not enough land. so that ratio of one family and one lot needs to delete the, 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 the the itself I don't know um, and so and you know what I, what I was saying about building for families, building for just other units than what we have de- delivered to the market so far, that was very much for investors. And it's not like I'm saying anything unrealistic, like, you know, for example, rental supply. I don't know how optimistic I am about how easy it will get to build rental, you know, what I purpose built that rental, not rental through investors, those that those projects that are purpose-built rental, adding to the rental supply of the city. Why? Because we have laws that make it really, really hard and really unfeasible for developers to develop new purpose-built rental. And at the same time, the rental replacement policy has great intentions, but de facto working with that policy, it's really, really hard. So let me just, because I'm on the stake, I, I, I'm being professional, I want to do like 30 seconds of what the rental replacement is. Um, so rental replacement, if you are about to redevelop a property that has six rental units or more, even if the units are illegal, you have to uh, bring those units to the market. So if you are the redeveloping a 12-story uh, building that is all-purpose builder rental. I'm looking right now out of the window of those you know, massive ones that are getting older, they are decaying, they are bad energy-wise. You would have to replace all of the units and all of the tenants would have the right to return and pay the same rent for the next 10 years and then additional 10 years, so 20 years. And that is making performers really, really hard to work. So these were thirty seconds about rental replacement policy. So you see, I'm not. If you ask me about rental in the market, if if we'll have affordable rental in the market, I don't know. I don't know how optimistic I am about that. But about the realistic need of just addressing demand. So Through the private sector, I don't want the government to do anything, maybe I do want the city to be less restrictive on height and density, and I definitely want them to give less power to NIMBYs who just complain for the sake of complaining, and I always say if 1% is the one that comes to open house and objects and development, 1% is not a democracy, we don't need to listen to this 1%. and. With that, I'm optimistic because I just don't see anything else that could potentially be here that will address the needs in the next two decades and moving forward. So to your answer, what I want to, to happen, I nothing from the government. All I want the city is actually to do less or object less. And and for for the private sector to understand that there is the demand that they that has been overlooked for way too long because they were focusing on investors and i get it but they overlooked a really good business opportunity that i think they need to play a little catch up with hmm.
2: yeah i i always hear the argument from a lot of developers that building the small, tiny studio units are much more profitable than larger three bedroom, even, I mean, in a, in a dream world, four bedroom condos, how, like, do you, do you find that is an issue? Do you find that will be, will you'll get pushed? Like you'd see pushback, um, encouraging that?
0: I have nothing against smaller units they build it because they worked for them and it, as long as there was demand and people were buying it, and there are uh, people who live in those units I i have no problem with that i don't think it's less i understand why they say it's less profitable i do know that they they are sold much faster than Mm -hmm. the larger units, because obviously prices per square feet, they are sold first and developers are stuck with the larger units because investors don't want to buy. Now the city dictates or or mandates the the construction of larger units. So I hope that we will see. So again, just as the professional, uh, the, the architect in the room, the city, this policy that I referred to, um the, the mandate is for 25% larger units in any development of 20 units or more. So let's say a new development, 100 units, 25 of them needs to be larger. And the, the specific percentage is 10% three-bedroom and 15% two-bedroom. So out of that imaginary uh, new development of 100 units, we will have 10 three bedroom and 15 two bedrooms I I really hope and unfortunately I don't believe in policy and regulation if the city had to do that that's unfortunate I think again the market missed a really great business opportunity but let's see what happens now I think that now 2023 we will start seeing more of these units coming to the market and, and, uh, and to your question, your early question, it's not just about having a playroom in the condo, which is obviously a great idea. And I wish I had that in my condo. We don't. But it's a lot about other things that the building could offer and, and that you might not have in your unit. So in your house, for example, you will have a, a mudroom and a place to clean your whatever hockey and equipment and whatever. That is an excellent amenity to have in the condo that me as a parent could check off uh, if I need that, but I don't need it in my unit. A space for the stroller, you know, um, it it really comes down to, to that. So I hope that now six years after this policy came into effect, we will now start seeing how the three bedroom and the two bedroom, a four bedroom was never in that policy. So it's the two and the three, will start tipping the market. That's all I can, but let's see, let's have another you know podcast uh, session in a year and see if uh, those units are um, how much they go for
2: yeah.
1: um, i want I wanna to jump to I saw I don't know if it was today that you put it up, and we're gonna make sure that you share how people can find you and follow you after this because you put up a lot of good stuff. and one of the things that you just put up. On uh, I think it was on LinkedIn, with just a, a couple slides as part of one of your presentations. And you probably know what I'm talking about, about the, yeah. the 47% of Torontonians living in, I don't want to misquote, is it condos? Like high-rise, basically.
0: Not even and high-rise, but yeah, sorry, I'll let you I, I don't know
1: if they said high-rise, but it was it was the city saying that, that, yeah, 47% live in apartments and condos or something to that effect. And you brought up a very interesting and telling stat associated with that that wasn't mentioned that I think really feeds to what this opportunity is to do a lot of the things you talk about so maybe it's a good segue but i'll let you talk a bit about what that was all about
0: right so yeah and and i actually was cool because in the session that you you guys and i met um the city is very proudly quoting um a, a statistic that came from the census tracts in earlier uh this year it's from from 2021 that 47% of Torontonians live in a a building that is higher than five stories. So what the city identifies mid-rise and high-rise. So they're very proud to say that 47%, almost half of Torontonians, what they don't mention in the same statistics is that you're only allowed to build anything taller than five stories in less than 10% of the land. So there are two, if we're referring to the land use map of the city of Toronto, which is one of the strongest tools that directs growth or where you are allowed to build what, there are two colors, pink, and orange. Pink is mixed-use area, so imagine streets like Bloor, St. Clair, Eglinton, College, Dundas. This is pink. And orange, which is apartment neighborhoods. These two colors are historically and currently where you are allowed to have anything taller than five stories. So those 47% of Torontonians only consume 8% of the land, which is crazy to think about. Um, and the other thing that I uh, was recently, I was recently someone posted, I posted something on LinkedIn and someone commented is even the way we call in the land use map in the official plan. Okay. This is an official term, apartment neighborhoods. Why do we need to differentiate between neighborhoods as in normal neighborhoods and apartment neighborhoods which is where the people who live in apartment these are their neighborhoods so even just to see in the language and this is taken from the official plan every experienced developer or broker or anyone from the industry who's listening to me right now i'm sure has taken it for granted for our entire life because until someone commented on my post i i, I did as well but when we talk about stigma and uh, and you know stigma for against those who live in apartments slash rental slash condo, again, whatever you want to call it, just not in a house with a backyard, it's it's crazy to to go to the language that is officially, you know, this is from the official plan. They also had uh, protect the neighborhoods, again, a quote from the official plan. Stable neighborhoods. Again, quote from the official plan. But this apartment neighborhood, which is a neighborhood for people who live in apartments, is is it's crazy.
2: Yeah, that, that is really crazy. And, and going back to your comment about making it very difficult for developers or just for the city to put in place high rise or even just multifamily units. Um, I know, you know, and even in the area that Daniel and I live, so we're in a suburb of Toronto, well Vaughn, so just north of Toronto and uh, right on the corner of our area, there was a proposal for about a 40 story condo. And you could imagine most of the neighbors are up in arms about how could you do this to our community? What's going to happen to traffic and, and all the amenities and all that kind of stuff. So I do see that in action quite a bit. And of course, now that plan has been um, taken away and and I guess they'll try to put something a little bit lower rise in that area. But from your experience with other cities, is that just not something that happens, that consultation and opportunity for neighbors and the NIMBYs to to jump in?
0: I'm not familiar with the specifics of the development application that you are mentioning I don't know about it no I was just I'm mentioning this because uh, anyway that was an an uncomfortable situation that I found myself that I was completely miscommunicated so I don't know but let's speak to the general yeah
2: generally speaking
0: uh, exactly so first of all people tend to complain about the same things and I even got letters about people saying that our parks don't are at capacity and cannot welcome any new. And I obviously I did not respond to that person. But what do you mean your parks are at capacity? So you are the lucky person who was here in the right time in the right place, and you cannot welcome anyone new because there literally what no space in the park. What, what? you know? It's just. Um, it, it was so disgusting to, to read it, even. Um, and, and I'm not sure, you know, if the person who wrote that letter even understands how disgusting that was uh, of a comment. Or people are saying about traffic and um, um, another really good one that I like is that uh, the city's infrastructure cannot handle, like the pipes literally could not handle more sewage. or And... Uh, and I hear that a lot, like on every single application, I hear shadows, I hear the pipes cannot handle this, I hear like the city infrastructure generally. And, you know, it's like, now it's not them, it's the pipes, right? <laughs> it's not, they're not Nimbus, it's really it's the pipes that are, cannot handle it. So everything on that, on the social, on the infrastructure and the social infrastructure, these things are being reviewed uh, development pays for itself. I, I'm sure you talked and covered a lot about development charges that have recently gone up by 50%. And specifically about the pipes, for example, it's a it's an, a, an area the engineering department reviews capacity. There are studies that developers are required to provide on every single stage of the development from rezoning through site plan to permit. These things are being reviewed. and I never heard of a, of a case study where, you know, the engineering department recommended against something and city council imp- approved it anyway. So all of these NIMBY's concerns are something that I hear, this, I know what they're gonna say before they saying it, and I, now I have a, a rationale how to address each and every of these items. Um, I think, NIMBY is a very natural human response to the most expensive investment you've ever done in your life. And, and I have empathy for that. But at the same time, we cannot let that dictate how our city is going to build. And especially density is something that goes very well with transit and investment in transit so I don't know about again the specific of the case study that you mentioned but if it's near the Vaughan Metropolitan Center where else would where where else would you put um, uh, density if not near new transits so
1: yeah 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 but I feel like we need a new name now like NIMBYs we talk about but these people you're talking about are like nymphs not in my park or not, yeah, in my not
0: Yes, there's also banana build absolutely nothing anywhere. Did you hear that? <laughs> no, I've never heard <laughs> that. that. Is That's hilarious. <laughs> I,
1: I, I just find it interesting. And I mean, it is good, like, as you know, and as most people listening to this know, like, rules have been changed for the better recently with the ability to at least impact, you know, multifamily builds and the ability to do more on existing lots right now. I'm just I mean, it's more just, I guess, a confusion that we all have that doesn't have an answer. But people who have issue with stuff around them versus the stuff that they themselves own is a little bit suspect to me. Like, I understand if something's going to block your entrance to your property or things that are going to have a material impact on what you own. But when it's shared community land slash amenities slash whatever I, I don't think when anybody did originally whenever it was purchase one of these properties they purchased exclusive right or they ex- they purchased a capacity to a park or things like that so not
0: only capacity to a park you don't own the view from your house so all of these block my view to the sand tower bring the property the, oh that's another one that i love bring the value of my property down who in this city has to worry about, like if you purchased your house 30 years ago, how can you even say anything about bringing the value of your property down? Your, your, the value has appreciated by so much, and this is your expertise, not mine, but to it's say a, that a building a, a new condo will bring the value and, and the, the irony of this is that development usually improves its, its uh, immediate uh, if it, it's replacing something that is underutilized with new retail, new amenities, new landscape, improvement of sidewalk all, all of that all of those things how can you say that it will bring the value of your property down just because there is another I, I don't even know what it is that bothers them so yes blocking the view you do not own the view from your house unless you purchased like I don't know (laughs) but still you don't own the view from your house you don't get to to you just don't get to complain about value of your property I'm sorry it's just not how this is not how the game works so um, what else do I hear? Um, yeah, but these these are two are like very,
1: yeah. I mean, it's it's gonna it's gonna be interesting how and I mean I won't put you on the spot at all about the mayoral race because that's a totally loaded topic. But there are those candidates who are very pro protecting the neighborhoods and the nimby's of the world, and there are those that aren't. And I think that the direction that this may or may not go is going to have some impact. I'm sure it goes without saying, the way that things move forward might not be stopped, but will definitely either be slowed or sped up one way or the other, depending on how, uh, you know, the the power in office might change. Now, I don't know, but like, I only say that because of strong mayoral powers, and I know the direction that things were going. Um, yeah. But anyway, that, that's just, I, I'm very, we're all very ear to the ground with this stuff, I think, with what's going on.
0: I out. think that my hope is that housing will become what. Transit, the discussion around transit has become so in in past elections, you had like transit pros and cons. Now everyone knows that investing in transit is the right thing. Like I'm talking even about the federal elections, Um, all of them were pro transit across the board. And you didn't have to, you didn't, uh, we didn't used to have that pro transit um, mindset. And it's something that, that it's interesting to see how transit is now not it, not on the table as a debate. Now, having said that, I'm still hearing people like, you know, they don't want, or now with the Ontario line being uh, built and still question the necessity of transit in Toronto, where we have this of a long catch up to play on transit, like unbelievable. So we really can't have those, uh, those voices in our communities that question the necessity of, of new transit. But still, th- today, they are th- the minority. So I hope that with housing, uh, housing will have that, just the question of housing and affordability. I'm not saying like, but and by the way, mayor is very different from councillors who are all they can see and think of is the next election and just listen to the loudest voices in their communities. From councillors, I'm sorry to say, I don't have a lot of hope when, when you know it comes to that, but mayor is different. Mayor is citywide, across the board, and I don't think that we could really, I will be very surprised if a mayor that is anti-housing and affordability will be elected. Um,
1: Right. Yeah. No, I, I want to believe you're right. I I do think you're right there.
0: Uh, I mean, in Toronto, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, there's just a lot of interesting things. I mean, the talk of the science center now as a, as a big topic that everyone's talking about, moving the science center to create uh, whatever the plan might, I don't know that anybody's put a lot of plan down other than saying this would be a great spot to build new communities and housing. Um, And I'm sure it would be. I mean, from your perspective, from a development side, like versus doing the same thing at Ontario Place where they're saying to move the Science Centre, is it just that the existing transit and infrastructure makes more sense where that is, that it would be easier to build something there? Uh,
0: Specifically, uh, the the Science Centre, just to make sure we're on the same page, used to be in middle of nowhere Mm. to two lines of transit, the Eglinton LRT and the Ontario line. It's gonna be first or last stop, depending on obviously where you're coming, but the line is going to start in exhibition place and and, uh, end at the science center. Um, I, to be honest, I'm not familiar with plans of replacing the science center. I am familiar with plans of building on top of the surface parking of the lot so I might I might be there might be something that I am not aware of asking me about replacing surface parking with housing come on is there an easier question on earth where two lines of transit intersect so
1: more parking more parking yeah
0: more parking exactly that means (laughs) um so it. you see how it became from the middle of nowhere into an intersection of two Mm. Uh, to transit lines, the Eglinton LRT and the Ontario line.
2: Are you seeing also opportunity with commercial space, buildings that might have become vacant over COVID, people working from home? Like, is there opportunities there?
0: That's a very good question. First of all, the office is not dead. Like guys, please, Mm. the office is not dead. We come to the office five days a week. We have a team. So obviously if you don't have a team or if you do have a team, that's a big difference. But I feel, and and uh, even before we came up with more of an official policy to that everyone uh, come to the office, we saw the need for it. We, we are a small team, obviously, so it was easier for us real estate wise, but uh, still the office is not dead. I do think so. You know, Quadrangle, which is an uh, incredible architecture firm in the city, they moved to the well, well, uh, which is a very, it's a brand new office space. And they only have uh, room for 35% of staff. So at any given moment, staff could, uh, they have this app, it's really funny, and they could like choose a, a desk. No one has a desk that is allocated to them. And I thought that is brilliant because you are giving them uh, it, you know, the, the vibe of downtown um, and they can come to the office. It's an, an amazing office space that I don't want to even imagine how much money uh, uh, their BDP quadrangle are saving on rent for, you know, being uh, only 35% of of their head capacity. So I think they nailed it. I think it's brilliant. Uh, for me and my small team, We come to the office five days a week, but I'm not at the size of Quadrangle. So the office is not dead. And, and, you know, people said that about retail, that when e-commerce started, uh, you know, 20 years ago, oh, retail is dead, retail is dying, retail." retail only had to reinvent itself to be focusing more on the experience rather than just brick and mortar. And I think office is doing the same thing. Office is reinventing itself. Speaking to converting office buildings to residential, I think it's very tricky because of the Ontario Building Code. Office buildings have a really deep floor plate that it will be really hard to get natural light to to the units uh, if you're, like I'm saying, converting them because office obviously doesn't have the same requirement for natural light as residential uses have. But I do think it also raises a very interesting concept of can we design buildings that in their life cycle will be adaptable to other uses? And who said that only one building could have one use in its life cycle? The buildings that we're building here are going to be here after all of us are dead sorry to be so so bland on Friday afternoon but (laughs) but they are here longer than than us and and I think we need to that is a kind of a a warning for us or an opportunity for us to see how we can build buildings that are could, could adapt through their life cycle so it's just an interesting thought I'm not I mean you know Nothing has changed, but um, I think the the office situation right now in the city definitely brings up some opportunities to to consider. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so I I guess a good way to kind of wrap this up is with the opportunities and to really lay into what would you say, I mean, you talk about how 92% of the land right now effectively is you know, two stories high, more or less, right? Right. If, if you were to write a very, and you have, and it's a, there's no such thing as a quick blueprint, you've written many blueprints, but what are kind of the, the main takeaways that need to be the focus, that need to be part of getting this city back on the right track so that we've got small kids too. I mean, when our kids are growing up and need a place to live, you know, I, I don't think we're completely headed in the same wrong direction entirely. I think there's some progress being made. But what are those few things that just need to happen or need to be the real focus over the course of the next 10 to 20 years that are going to get us on the right track entirely for when our kids are our age? I,
0: I do have simple answer to that, and that is transit, 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 because with transit comes, that's the snowball effect that will that will improve many other things. So the, the short answer to your question is invest in transit, uh, support the transit. It's all, it's, it's a headache. Um, but, uh, and, and I live in very close to one of the new stations on the King and Bathurst station, and already like, I see construct, like they're rebuilding the streetcar uh, tracks so it could divert. It, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big pain. Um, And, uh, but transit, transit, transit. In terms of opportunities, I really think the developers are missing a huge market of, um, you know, selling directly to the end user, whatever you want to call it, uh, that end user is. But we covered that earlier in the conversation. So once you have transit and you have housing, uh, I think we will be on a much better for i don't know how old your kids are my my older my my daughter is 4 years old and i have another one is uh, is 1 and i calculated that by she will be my age in 2054 and then i tried to imagine toronto in 2054 and by the time that she has to make a housing choice of where you know to to live and move in and settle in I really, really hope that we're leaving something behind us that will make her choice easier. And unlike her mother, wouldn't have to move out uh, to, to another city, another country in my case, for better housing opportunities.
2: Well, A great one, goal to look for. In, to work 20, towards.
1: in 2054, I think. I'm trying to do the math in my head while she was talking. Yeah, one of our kids is going to be our age in 2054. So we're on the same page. <laughs> that's, a, that's our target year. 2054 yeah, is incredible. the target. So, so tell everybody how, and we're going to post this also with, with the, uh, the episode, but how can people find you? Where should they follow you to, to keep up on all the stuff that you're putting out there? Uh,
0: LinkedIn will be a good spot to start.
1: Okay, just search your name. I mean, we'll put a link to your, to your profile on LinkedIn there and thank just you. subscribe to your stuff. I mean, you put stuff on YouTube as well, right?
0: Yes, but they, that's why I said LinkedIn would be a good space, space, spot to start, yeah. Is that's it? the hub. It awesome.
2: Well, thank we'll you guys. There. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. It was so great. Such a great conversation. Really important conversation as well. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks again. We will we'll talk have a to great you weekend. soon. I might be seeing you again soon talking to city folks who knows
0: Sounds good. <laughs> okay.
1: okay take
2: bye
0: guys okay.
2: bye Bye. bye. bye.